Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's Bible study is Lesson 5 over the book of Isaiah, chapters 10, 11, and 12. Can you tell me what city that is on the screen, those of you who didn't already get the answer? What is it? Huh? Brownsville, yeah. That's right. It's got a river running through the middle. It's got, you know, Matamoros, and then on the other side, Brownsville. Huh? That is Babylon. That is an ancient rendering of Babylon. We're going to be talking about not tonight, but Babylon, very significant city. Arguably, the two most significant cities in the Bible are the, is Jerusalem and Babylon. And both of them play very significant roles in the end times. And so we're going to be looking at Babylon next time. But I already had it up there, so I thought, you know, I'm just going to leave it there because I, really, I like maps, frankly, because uh, Babylon was a, is a very exceptional city, very powerful, very, very influential city. So we're going to be uh, not talking about Babylon tonight, so that's just to, just to make sure you come back next time. Uh, we're in uh, Isaiah chapter 10, and uh, we're going to be starting down in verse 5, because last time we went down through verse 4 in chapter 10, because the, sometimes the chapter breaks are arbitrary. They're just there. The, the people who divided the scriptures up into numbers and chapters uh, did the best they could, but sometimes it wasn't too good, so... Sometimes the lot fell on the wrong side of things, and so we went down through verse 4. Actually, chapter 10 should start probably down at verse 5. Uh, but, but let's pray, and uh, we're going to get started uh, with our Bible study. God, we're so grateful that uh, you have chosen to communicate to us through your Word, and it is powerful. Uh, it is truth. I pray, God, that, it, it, that we would acknowledge it and recognize it as the relevancy that it is. I pray that you would open our eyes to what that truth is. I pray you'd give us strength tonight to not only understand, but to uh, apply to our lives the things you're going to be teaching us. God, I thank you that we can be together. I thank you for the great testimonies we heard tonight. I thank you for the great food that we were able to have. And so now, Lord, as we come before your table, we're just asking God that you would help us to feed on the things you have for us and grow uh, thereby. Bless our time now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, chapter 10 really should start down in verse 5 and uh, because of just the way the, the, the mood changes here in verse 5. And uh, so we have this woe that starts to Assyria. Like I said, mostly Isaiah is not talking about Assyria. He mostly spends most of his time against Babylon. But even, even so, in both cases, they are prophecy. Babylon just doesn't happen. The city and that you see there. The, the power of it and the influence of it doesn't start for probably 150 years after Isaiah. And Assyrians don't really start in power until probably 60, 70 years after Isaiah. So in both cases, it's prophecy. Woe to Assyria! The rod of my anger, again, God speaking, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. So these are the Assyrians were people that God raised up to accomplish His purposes, to carry out His wrath and His judgment and His will. Uh, on the planet against Israel and against other nations. Assyria is not a, small, not a small empire. Assyria, the empire itself, lasts for 700 years. That's a long time. How long have we been around? 250? Where, where are we now? 250, something like that? 260? Uh, 700 years? That's rivaling Rome as far as uh, their, their, their power and influence is concerned. Uh, they were God's instrument to judge the northern kingdom of Israel, and, uh, but they were also evil themselves, and eventually God was, judges them. Just because God uses them for his purposes doesn't mean that they get away with stuff. And uh, so even though God is using them, he still, uh, he still uses. So God, so God uses the good and the bad? Yeah, actually. Have you not heard God works all things together for good? All things. What is all things? It's all, all things. Because why? Because God is sovereign. God is in control. Nothing shocks God. Everything is... Uh, there's, he doesn't learn anything. He can't learn anything. Because he's already always known it. I will send against a godless nation. Verse 6. And commission it against the people of my fury. He's talking about Israel. To capture booty and to seize plunder and to tra trample, trample them down in the streets like mud, like mud in the streets. That, that phrase there in the previous phrase, to capture booty and to seize plunder, is actually a name of one of Isaiah's two kids. He was, it was tough being a... 
I've had it tough to be a preacher's kid today. Tough to be a preacher's kid back then because you got named these weird names because your names were also, you're, you were involved in the whole prophecy issue. And so they have, one of his kids had that very name and it was in reference to what uh, the Assyrians were going to do. It was an odd job to be a prophet. And uh, even your kids were involved in it. So, verse 7. Yet it does not in it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is in its purpose to destroy. So even though I'm using them, they don't understand that. He's talking about the Assyrians. To cut off many nations, for it says, Are not my princes all kings? Here's the Assyrian nation saying, Aren't we awesome? Aren't we incredible? They just assume it's all about them. They assume it's all their power. Is not Calno like Carchemish? These are kingdom state, city states that they conquered. Hamath like Arpad and Samaria like Damascus, as my hand is reached in the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So, so even though God just commissioned them against the northern kingdom, they decided they were going to continue to go south. And of course, if you know the story, it didn't work out for them. Uh, God stopped that process. And of course, uh, they were only going to do what God was going to allow them to do, bragging over what they did led them to think that they were um, bigger than God, that God wasn't, didn't even exist. And, and there's no sin like the sin of uh, pride and arrogance that God judges. Watch the arrogance here in verse 12. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all of his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. So yeah, he was using them. But uh, they were also, if there's a sin that God hates, like I said, it certainly is the sin, sin of pride and arrogance. Failure to acknowledge God, that's pride and arrogance. Failure to acknowledge the sovereignty of God and the power of God over our lives is a huge mistake. I know we've been to this passage many, many times lately, but it just says so much. It holds so much for us to understand. Even though they knew God, it's natural. There's a natural knowledge of God everybody's born with. They did not honor Him as God. And give thanks. So, so it's all about me. It's all about what I did. Look how great I am. My education, my experience, my ability, my this, uh, my that. And that, guys, is where everything turns south. They became futile. It's just like, it's the same as reading the story of the Assyrians. Same as reading our story. They became futile in their reasoning and their senseless hearts were darkened, skipping down to verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge, there's the same word again. God, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So all, to acknowledge God is not just a nod to God, it's a recognition that He is the complete owner in control of everything. That's the wisest. You see a person that acknowledges that, you're looking at a wise person. But a person that thinks they exist completely apart from the, from the power and will of God is not a wise person. They're not. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is, this is how, how do we acknowledge God in our lives? Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him. It's not a nod to God it's talking about. It's saying, God, I know that you're the one that's in control. You're the only one that knows everything. You're the only one that has power. If I got up today because you wanted me to. I will go bed tonight because you want me to. If this works out, it's because you want me to. And if it doesn't, it's because you don't want me to. It's acknowledging Him in all of our ways. Not leaning on our understanding. And He will make your paths straight. It's God's way, it's His power, it's His will, it's His knowledge, it's His wisdom uh, to get us through. Nothing, nothing else does. Uh, and the Assyrians had done the exact opposite. They had assumed and taken credit for all their success and all their power and all their wealth and all their wisdom. It was not theirs. It was actually God's. And so they were headed very quickly into, uh, even though being used as the tools of judgment, they were very headed very quickly into uh, judgment themselves. So look how full of himself this king is, verse 13. For he has said, the king, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this. No, God allowed it to happen. That's all. For I have understanding and I removed the boundaries of the peoples and I plundered their treasures like a mighty man. I brought them down in this inhabitants. He's just, like I said, just as puffed up as he could possibly be. By my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest and as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth, and there, were not, there was not one that flapping even its wings uh, up, up, or opened its beak or chirped. So, again, arrogance, pride. If you really, really want God to judge you, 
just take off in that direction. I guarantee you he makes sure that uh, before, before a fall comes, I mean, pride follows a fall every single time. And so here's God's answer to this high and mightiness. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? What is your, you have anybody have an axe at home? What is your axe doing right now? Nada. It can't do anything without you. Just an axe. It's sharp. It's got a great handle. It's uh, ready to go. Well, not without power behind it. It's just an inanimate object. So is Assyria. They're just effectively inanimate unless God animates them. Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would, that would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors, and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame, and the light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour the thorns and the briars in a single day. Remember what happened to Assyria? So, so they're marching south. They're all the way up on the northern end of the Euphrates River, and they're headed south where Nineveh is, and they conquer all of Mesopotamia. And then they head south into what we know today as Lebanon. And they move into the northern, move into Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And they conquer them because that's what God said they were to do. And they decided they were going to keep on going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the city. It's, it's the city. Why wouldn't we after do it? Is not this town like that town? Is not our conquering here? Couldn't we just do it? I mean, it was just like, of course we're going to march into Jerusalem. Remember what happened to them there? Story of Hezekiah. We're going to see it here in the book of Isaiah. The story of Hezekiah, the king. And they march against Jerusalem, and God wipes them out, as it says here, as we just read, in a single day. 185,000 Assyrians are dead by one angel. And that's exactly what's being prophesied here uh, by Isaiah. In one day. And notice, not much is going to be left. Verse 18, he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away, and the rest of the trees of the forest will be so few in number that, it could, that a child could write them down. He's talking about human beings, not talking about wood and timber. There's just going to be so few of them left. He's just going to wipe them out. So verse, uh, verse 20. Now speaking of Israel. Now it will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Remnant will return and a remnant of Jacob to the mighty one of God, to the mighty God. For through your people, O Israel, may be, though your people may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return, and destruction is determined overflowing with righteousness. They, when they were exiled, the northern kingdom and the southern by the time the southern kingdom was exiled under Babylon, by the time that they returned, only about fifty thousand. When when they were conquered by the Assyrians first, and then by the Babylonians later, there was upwards of six million people in Israel. Seventy, eighty years later, fifty thousand. So God decimated them. That's, that's, <laughs> that's killing off a lot of people, and uh, that's what he did. So it was definitely, compared 50,000 compared to 6 million is definitely just a remnant. Verse 23. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. He's not talking about Israel. He's talking about the lands, the lands around it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrians who strike you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you like the way of, like Egypt did. For in a very little while, my indignation will be against you and will be spent, and my anger will be directed at their destruction. The Lord of hosts will arouse and scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And this is talking about Gideon, the situation that was there. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it up on the way as he did in Egypt. So, so, yeah, Israel went from 6 million to 50,000. Assyria went to... Have you met any Assyrians lately? They went to zero. So if that was the stock you were betting on, that stock went to zero. Again, if you're betting on a stock of human race, bet on the Jews. Because they're going to be here. They're staying. So they're not here anymore. The great nations aren't here anymore. You're not meeting any Babylonians. You're not meeting any Assyrians. You're not meeting any Persians. You're not meeting any Romans. Not meeting if, if, uh, any, any ethnic uh, Egyptians either. Uh, you're meeting Arabs. Ethnically, Egyptians have ceased to exist a very long time ago because God wiped them out. 
100% wiped them out. But Israel, on the other hand, you know, she's, she's alive and well, to be sure. Verse 27, So it will be in that day that this burden will be removed from your shoulders and this yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. Now, that's an interesting term there, and it actually is a term that refers to several things. So, so it sounds like the yoke won't fit on their neck because they just got so fat it just broke it off. You know, it's kind of like he flexed his, his table muscle, you know, and broke it. But actually the word there, fatness, is referring to, actually for, referring to a king. So remember, Israel calls all of their kings a certain title. You know what it, what it is, what it was, what it still is? What do they call their, their kings? Now, we call our, our leaders of our country presidents, right? Uh, the leaders of the country of Egypt call all their kings pharaohs. What did the Jews call all their kings? Messiah. That's what they called them all. It means to be anointed with oil. It's the anointed one. And so the, the word anointed refers to they would pour olive oil over them. Of course, the fat of an olive is the oil. We're headed, did I tell you all we were headed to Israel? No. We're going to Israel. And when we go there, James, this is what I want you to do. When we get there, olives are going to be ripe. There, there's these giant, I mean, bigger than your thumb, hanging on the trees. I'm going to let you be the first one to eat a ripe olive. You're going to be, oh, shh, shh don't comment. Because I need someone to test it, just like I did. Never eat an olive off a tree, ever. You will remember that occasion, I promise you. <laughs> it is the nastiest thing there possibly could be. So they would take these olives and they would crush them and they would get the, quote, fat out of them. And it is fat. I mean, obviously, the, the, the olive oil is, is a fat. And that's what it's being referred to here. The, actually, the fatness that's breaking the yoke of Assyria is the king of Israel. He's the anointed one, the Messiah of Israel. It's going to be Hezekiah. So it's actually a, a included reference to Hezekiah and his reign and his victory over the Syrian army. So verse 28. They have gone through the past saying, and he starts giving this blow by blow, uh, like a war bulletin's kind of step as they're headed south and headed to Jerusalem. Uh, and you don't get a feel for this unless you've been to the country, which, by the way, did I tell you that we're going there? And we're going to get to see some of these places. In fact, when we get to this certain place, I want to point out to you guys that get to go exactly what this king was able to do. But, but, but listen to the, the basically war bulletins. God's tracking the movements of the Assyrian armies that's headed south toward Jerusalem. He has come from Ai, that's in the north. And he has passed through Miron and Michmash, and he has deposited his baggage. This is talking about about, seven, about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. And then Michmash is about 7 miles north of Jerusalem. So he's headed south. And they've gone through the pass, uh, saying, Geba will be my lodging place, and Ramah is terrified, and Gibeon of Saul has fled away. And so Gibeon of Saul and Ramah are about six or six and a half miles northwest of Jerusalem. And then Anathoth is going to tell us in just a second. Cry aloud with your voice, O daughter of Galim. Pay attention, Laish, and uh, wretched Anathoth. Madmana uh, has fled. The inhabitants of Gibeam have sought refuge. Again, he's just continuing to track this direction. Anathoth was three miles north, and now he's moving almost all the way into the edge of Jerusalem. Yet today, he will halt at Nob. Nob is on the uh, Mount of Olives. And when you go to Jerusalem with us, one of the things you're going to find out really strange about Jerusalem is that Jerusalem is not on the highest mountain. You would think it would be. It's not. Mount Zion is not tall. Mount Zion is like a little, little knob in the middle of a valley and surrounded by much higher mountains. The, the, the Mount of Olives, you stand on the top of Mount of Olives, which is exactly where this, it says this king is standing. You can look down into the city. Like the, the Jews can stand in the city of Jerusalem and just kind of go, nah, 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 you can't come get us, you know, kind of thing. Notice, notice what the king does. It's interesting. You know, it's just, uh, you, you, get this, you get this idea. Today he will halt at Nob and he shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hills of Jerusalem, because you, you can't reach him from there. He has to go down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, and from there Jerusalem is nothing but up. It's like sheer, it's a sheer cliff to get up to them. And so it's a very, very, it's a very, very precise, uh, very tactical place to have a city. Because it's very attractive, because it looks like you can conquer it, but then when you get there as an army, you realize, gosh, you can't get into this place. Very, remember who founded the city? David, the warrior. Of all the places in Israel, he picks Jerusalem, because he knows it is a place that is easily defended. And so, so this king is shaking his fist, it's just interesting, 
the descriptive there, because that's many kings did that. The king of Babylon did that. The king of Assyria did that. The king of Egypt did that. I mean, they, they all had to come to Jerusalem and realize, wow, do we have our work cut out for us? Because getting into the city is extremely difficult. Uh, just, it, just was on, it just sits on this precipice, and you have to fight uphill to get to it. But again, it's, it, it, it doesn't seem that way when you're on a mountain above it looking down into it, and everybody's thumbing their nose at you. Uh, but it is that way. So, so God knows everything. So God's plotted out this, this is 70 years before Assyria invades. So God's given us war bulletins before a war's ever taken place. Just this is going to happen, then he's going to go there, then he's going to store his baggage there, then he's going to stop on the Mount of Olives, and he's gonna, they're going to thumb his nose, and he's going to be super mad, and he's just given us all these things as if it already happened. Again, one of the characteristics that makes the Scripture unique is that always, not always, but quite often we have history written in advance. There is not another text that does this. And there's not a way that this could have happened unless the origins of this text was outside of our space-time domain. You can't tell me what you're going to do tomorrow. And yet God writes history in advance by thousands upon thousands of years. Accurately. How did Isaiah know this stuff? He did not. He's just a human being. Plenty of human beings write quote-unquote sacred, sacred texts, and these sacred texts are just total garbage. Until you get to this one. You realize that wasn't Isaiah that did this. That wasn't Jeremiah. That wasn't Daniel. That wasn't John. That wasn't this whatever prophet it was. Somebody, some mind behind this was above and beyond this. So Isaiah talks as if he's a TV announcer narrating a scene that has, it's not going to take place for 70 years in advance. Because God is ahead of everything. He always has been. God is ahead of all evil, he's ahead of all problems, he's ahead of all deviant behavior. He is allowing it, but he is ahead of it. That's why it can say things like it does. God works all things together for good. Why? Because he's ahead of it. He's ahead of it. As an example, and think about how he works things together for good. Uh, Adam and Eve, of course, sin in time. But Jesus was sacrificed in the mind of God before that. Watch. God's always ahead of stuff. Here's, by the way, these are the same two verses that I'm giving you comparison. The top, the top uh, translation is the New King James Version. The bottom translation is the New American Standard. And this is, in both cases, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. But notice what it says about, this is talking about the Antichrist. All who live on the earth will worship him. We know that. And everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slaughtered. So since the foundation of the world, there's been a book written about it. all those are going to be in heaven. Yeah. But, but notice the way that that's King James. So it, it refers to the, our names being written before the foundation of the world or not being written, whichever the case may be. And then notice the way the rendering of the New American Standard does it. All who dwell upon the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation. So is it our names in the book before the foundation of the world, or was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world? It's actually ambiguous. Very few places do you find in the New Testament Greek where the, where the language is ambiguous, because New Testament Greek is extremely precise. This, in this case, is ambiguous. The reason why you have two excellent translations, like the New King James and the New American Standard, falling on both sides of it, because it is really both of those things. Was our names written before the foundation of the world? Absolutely. How were they written? Because the Lamb, in the mind of God, was slain before the foundation of the world. Adam and Eve hadn't sinned. No snake in the garden. No fall. None of that. Because God, how far ahead is God? Infinitely. He is infinitely ahead. So Adam and Eve, interesting, had a position from which they could fall. Correct? And they did. We have, you and I, have a position higher than Adam and Eve's. They all oh, we were going to return to the garden. No, you won't. You don't want to go back to the garden. Because the garden is a place from which you can fall again. You're no better than Adam and Eve, no offense. Me neither. No, it has to be better than the garden. God has put us in a place from which we cannot fall. Adam and Eve, because it was based upon their deeds, of course, how long does it take you to mess up? You know, 15 minutes? Adam and Eve, they weren't in the garden very long, and they messed up. Our eternity is not based on what we have done. Our eternity is based on what Christ has done that cannot be changed. 
So unlike Adam and Eve, we have a position from which we cannot fall. Because our, 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 our relationship with God is based upon the works of Christ. Not on the works of Adam, not on the works of decisions of men and women. So God was ahead of all that. He's ahead of all that. How, how, how so? Well, infinitely so. Again, Jesus was not some second thought. It wasn't plan B after plan A didn't work out. Again, 2 Timothy, here's Paul's statement. He, is, he saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. It wasn't just since the cross. The decision of God was before he ever started this whole process. How far ahead is God? Infinitely ahead. He is infinitely ahead. So he's, he's ahead of the Assyrians, of course, and he's making that real clear by giving war bulletins before there's, before there's ever a war, 60 years before. Verse 33, Behold the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the bowels with a terrible crash, and those also who are tall in the stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty. What is he talking about, trees? Is God like a lumberjack or something? He doesn't have a problem with trees. He's got a problem with people. And so be sensitive. You see it a lot in Isaiah and a lot of the Old Testament prophets and some of the New Testament. Be sensitive to the fact that oftentimes leaders and kingdoms are referred to as trees. Cedars of Lebanon talks a lot about the cedars of Lebanon. Has God got a problem with the cedars of Lebanon? No. He's got a problem with people who exalt themselves and set themselves up really high, in this case, uh, the Assyrians. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. And so you have this, this analogy all the way through, this idiom that rep represents, and we need to be sensitive. Uh, God refers to leaders and high and mighty people as either trees or mountains very consistently throughout. Uh, so when you hear, hear of a mountain, especially when you're reading a prophet like Isaiah and you hear something about a mountain or a tree, don't think of a mountain and a tree. Think of people. Think of leaders. It may be his own people, it may not. In this case, it's, it is definitely Assyria. So, so we leave this heavy-duty text, and we find this back-and-forth uh, antiphonal type of response all the way through Isaiah, where he gives us this real heavy stuff, and then he gives us the really light stuff that, that brings up hope. We're talking about the, uh, Jesus here in chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse. Notice the, the, the juxtaposition. So you've got this mighty tree mighty tree that God's going to be lopping off the branches, referring to the king of Assyria and the nations of Assyria. Then it turns around and says, but I have a small little shoot that's going to take over the whole world. It's just interesting how, how he puts it. So then the shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from the roots uh, will bear fruit. And so we've spoken several times, like I said, uh, have spoken of the world leaders as trees. And so uh, now he speaks of Jesus in similar terms, but it's always, Jesus is never a mighty tree. He's always a twig. He's always just a shoot. Always humble. Whereas the leaders are arrogant. This is by my strength and by my sword and by my wisdom, and we conquered this city and that city because we're awesome and we're uh, not Jesus. He's not like that. Always humble. Always lowly. Always not like the leaders of the world as they posture and gain men's approval, only be brought down. Interesting, uh, one of the best commentaries on this whole using trees as an idiom of human beings. Look, with, if you will, at Daniel. Turn with me. Hold your spot where you are. And turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. And there's going to be some mighty kings actually in heaven with us, and I believe one of those is going to be a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, because I have his testimony here in the Bible, his conversion experience. And it came at the result of a lot of pain in, on his part because of his arrogance and pride. But notice that we're, we're going to look down here at Daniel chapter uh, 4. We're going to read down through verse 18. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the peoples. This is, did you know there's a king who wrote a chapter in your Bible? Nebuchadnezzar wrote a whole chapter of the book of Daniel. This is his chapter. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. This is not Daniel. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel includes it in his book. It seemed good to me to declare to the signs of the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. It's not the voice of a pagan, is it? Sounds like a converted person. 
How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, with the, as the ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. We saw his palace right there in his city, which is Babylon. He built it. And I saw in a dream and made, made me fearful these fantasies. And as I lay on my bed and visions in my mind kept alarming me, and so I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and his, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related my dream, his, the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, uh, since, by the way, that's where we get the word magi from. Actually, magi in the Aramaic, which this is written in Aramaic. Chief of the magi. You hear about them later on, don't we, in Jesus' birth? Where'd they come from? How'd they get their information? Well, you're looking at, he was the chief of them. So they got information from a really good Jew. Since I know that, that you, the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with this interpretation. Now these are the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed and I was looking behold, there was a tree. I've already told you to watch out for that tree stuff. He's not talking about a tree, he's talking about, he's actually talking about Nebuchadnezzar. In the midst of the earth and its height was great and the tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth and its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all and the beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. This is Nebuchadnezzar, Idiom, idiomatically. I was looking in the visions and in my mind and I lay on my bed and behold an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. And he shouted out, he, sh he shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree, cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage. That's exactly what God says he's going to be doing to Assyria, right? Scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from under its branches. Yet leave the stump with its root in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass of all the field. Let him be drenched in the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the grass of the earth and let, him, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time, that's seven years, pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is commanded of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. So by the way, that's a great commentary on where, where we are today. Where are we today? The condition of our world. It's terrible, right? Understand, it is God who sets up these kingdoms. It is God who sets up the rulers. You don't like Biden? Me neither. But you got yourself a problem. Because it is God who put him there. Don't ever give credit to Satan for what God does. God is in charge. So who we get as a leader is either a blessing or a curse to us, and that is God making those blessings and curses. And you need to deal with that. So, so of course, if you know the rest of the story, what happens is, is that this is the story of what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, and this is exactly what happened to him. He went crazy, literally. Lost his mind for seven straight years. Went out and lived in the woods like an animal, ate grass like an ox. It's actually a described uh, medical, psychological condition. It's, not, it's very, very rare, but it does happen to people. So uh, not just because you eat rabbit food doesn't make you crazy. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and then he was brought back, actually, and made king for a number of more years at, at the very end and got his sanity back, and of course his whole conversion story is in, in here and the, rest, in the rest of this. So we have this story of this leader being brought low, and he's described as this massive tree. Jesus is never described like that. He's always a shoot, always a twig, always a stem. He's called, the, Jesse, of course, was the father of David the king, so the shoot, back to, back to Isaiah, this shoot comes out of the stem of Jesse. And we saw earlier this branch is a Hebrew word for net, it's the Hebrew word netzer. And it's where the word Nazarene comes from. The, he was called a netzerine or a Nazarene. We hear Nazarene in our anglicized uh, interpretation of it. He was a netzerine. He was, a, he was literally this shoot that comes out of the root of Jesse or out of the, out of the root of David. 
And that's this picture that's being uh, painted for us here. And so we have a consistent, this consistent title we have in both Old and New Testament that Jesus is this root, he is this, this shoot. Matthew uh, 2.23, he went and lived in the town called Nazareth so that it would be fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he might be called uh, Netzerine. Again, you don't find these exact words in the Old Testament because it's a, it's a play on words. A Nazarene and a Netzer were considered the same thing. So again, you have that here in Isaiah though. Uh, another place, uh, Romans 15, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up and the one who will rise will rule over the nations and him the Gentiles will hope, to be sure. Uh, Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you the testimony for the churches. I am, notice, his own, his own acknowledgement. I am the root and the offspring of David. How can you be both? So, so the root is where the tree comes from, right? And the offspring is the product of the tree. So he came from David as far as physically speaking, but he's actually the creator of David. Uh, literally and uh, spiritually speaking. So he's both the root and the offspring of David and the bride and morning star, uh, as, as he says there. He's both humble and reserved. He is not this great tree, even though he is, but he's got nothing to prove. Look, let's go and look at Revelation, another place where it says the same kind of thing. Revelation chapter 5. Again, these men who exalt themselves, who puff themselves up, are referred to as these trees, and God's going to cut them down. But his son is just a shoot. He's just a twig. Now, how, tw how twiggy can you get, born to two impoverished people out of Nazareth in a little bitty town called Bethlehem, born in a stable, laid in a manger? That's twiggy. That's not a great tree. You're not talking about a massive tree here. We're talking about a twig. Looks like a twig. Seems like, acts like a twig. He, he doesn't raise his voice, the scripture says. He, smoldering wick he does not put out. Where's the great tree? Where's the mightiness in all this? Well, the mightiness was in his humility. He had lowered himself, becoming, becoming just like one of us, even to the point of giving himself uh, uh, to die upon a cross. So Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through uh, 7. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne the book written in inside on the back and sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel. So John's getting this picture of the, of the throne room of God. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book, to break its seals? This is a title deed to the earth, a title deed to creation. And as we're going to see, no one is found. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Now why would God go looking for a man so he looks for Men in heaven, there are men in heaven. Apparently, why would the angel go look there? And men, of course, are on earth. Who knows where else he looks? Under the earth. Because men are all three places. And women, not to be sexist. You all get to go there. Who is worthy? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly, because John's a Jew and he understands the necessity. This is a kinsman redeemer, and there is no redeemer. Or seemingly so. Because no one is found worthy to open the book or look into his seals. Nobody to buy us back. Nobody to redeem us. And one of the elders said, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, here it is, the root of David, has overcome and has opened the book and it's seven seals. Well, we're expecting to see in the next scene this great lion, but notice, I saw between the throne and the four living creatures, the elders, a lamb. Nothing more pitiful. Anybody ever been around a lamb? They're absolutely the most defenseless things there possibly could be. Absolutely. Like a, a, a sparrow could kill it. they just absolutely completely defenseless. A lamb, as, and it's already dead, as if it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out on the all the earth, and he came and took it out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. Of course, he breaks the seals, and that's the beginning of the judgments here uh, in Revelation. So, so, again, you have this, just this picture of, this, uh, of who Jesus is, and so he is in every way the mighty tree, right? But he's never depicted that way. He's, all the lamb, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's never depicted that way. Always humble. Always calm. Always steady. 
He's the same one. When, did I tell you we're going to Israel? When we go to the empty tomb, one of the questions that I have, and you can't, you can't, you can ha- can't steal my thunder because I have to sound like I'm really smart when I'm there, just so y'all know. Okay? Just the ones that are going. Pastor Bill, you're really smart. Practice. Pastor Bill, you're really smart. <laughs> one of the things, one of the points I like to make when they're in the empty tomb is that it says in the scriptures when, when Peter and John went after Mary came and said, his body isn't there. They ran, and Peter stopped, and John went in, and they saw the linens that he had been wrapped with, and the head linen that they put upon their head was folded, laying separately. Now, who, who? So heaven and earth are hanging in the balance here. We're talking about the salvation of all mankind. Who takes the time to fold the napkin that your hair was wrapped in? Is it like a sign to his mother? You know, Mom, you always told me to make my bed, and so even when I resurrected, I made my bed. No, it's one who's completely, totally in charge. He's got no, he's not rushing. He's got nothing to prove. All power, all everything, heaven and earth and under the earth, all everything is going to bow to him. So he takes the time to fold a napkin, if you will, because, because he can. So it's interesting, we have this, now starting all the way, now we're back in, we're all the way back in, in uh, Isaiah. It's interesting, it starts this story here, this, this, this back and forth uh, Hebrew uh, uh, poetry of the Spirit of God, the sevenfold Spirit, the seven-faceted Spirit. We looked at that last time, we saw here in Revelation chapter uh, 1, verses 4 and 5, notice the seven, the seven churches of the, in the province of Asia. This is John writing. He, write, he writes to these seven churches, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and the seven spirits before his throne. What is that? Old Testament idiom for the, for the uh, Holy Spirit. Again, we, we just saw this in Revelation 5. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. It's, it's a Hebrew, it's, it's a Hebraism, as we talked about this morning. It's not that there are seven spirits, but seven, of course, is the number of completion. And, and I want you to notice here the Spirit of God is going to be described here in Isaiah chapter uh, 11, verses 2 uh, and 3, this sevenfold spirit, if you will. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. If you start counting with the Spirit of the Lord, you have seven here. Seven facets, if you will, of, of the Spirit. We saw this seven also last time we were looking together in Zechariah. Looking at the, the reference to the stone. Now let's look at the reference to these eyes. These same eyes that are talking about the Spirit of God. The stone that was set before in front of Joshua, there were seven eyes on that one stone, and it will engrave, and I will engrave it uh, an inscription on it says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of the land in a single day. Who is the stone? It's Jesus. Why, why seven eyes on this lamb and seven eyes on this stone? Of course, Jesus doesn't have seven eyes. He'll get up there and try to, people, artists have tried to make renderings of Jesus with seven eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth. And you're missing the whole point. We're, we're speaking idiomatically. Idiomatically, he is the possessor of the Spirit of God, the sevenfold Spirit as illustrated here in, in Isaiah uh, chapter 11. The sevenfold Spirit of God. And it says this, I will remove the sin in one day, right? He, remember, he's engraved for us. The engravings of Jesus are the only marks, man-made marks, are going to be in heaven. And I will remove the sin in a single day. He did that by this stone that was engraved, right? By Jesus who was pierced for us. Who has despised the day of the small things. This is in the next chapter, chapter 4 of, of Zechariah, verse 6. For these seven, talking about the seven eyes, notice, rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord that scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. So it's the Spirit of God. It's the eyes of the Lord. It's, it's the image of who Christ is, the pre-incarnate Christ. He is this lamb. He is this stone. He is... He is our everything, and so uh, we have this picture given to us uh, all the way through. And then you have this sevenfold notice here, so let's count them. So the Spirit of the Lord, that's one, will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom, that's two. Spirit of understanding, that's three. The Spirit of counsel and strength, that's four and five. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, that's six and seven. 
sevenfold. This is a very, very old way to refer to the Old Testament. Another interesting thing about this little passage here is, is, the, is the phrase there that says the spirit of counsel and strength. It's interesting, uh, if you look carefully in the Scriptures, you'll find out that when Solomon created his temple, he created, did some unusual things, of course, all directed by God. And in fact, Solomon is working off blueprints that his dad wrote. You ever read that? Read the book of Chronicles. So it's almost all the materials that Solomon uses to build the temple, and, all, and, and for sure the blueprints that he works off of, all were either accumulated or written by his dad, David. David was not allowed to build the temple, but he passed on all the blueprints that God had given to him by revelation, and all this material, gold and silver and all the things, and wood and all the things that he made, dress stones and all that. So, so he builds this temple, Solomon does, but in the front of it he has these two columns that are effectively useless. I mean, they don't, you build big columns, like they're, they're decorations, I should say. They're not supporting a roof. They're not a part of, part of the superstructure. And not only does he put these two columns out there, but the Bible goes on and on about their dimensions and how huge they are and the capital that goes on them. If you've if you read that passage there, it's in 1 Kings, and I think it's, in, and it's also in 1 Chronicles or 2 Chronicles, uh, where it records that. And not only does it describe their, their dimensions and all the, the capital that goes on, but it also gives them names. One of them is called Joaquin. He's not, you know, not Joaquin Barrera over here in Laguna Heights. We're not on my him. It, actually, that's actually a Hebrew name. The first one was named Joaquin, and the other one was called Boaz. And that is the exact words that you have right here in uh, chapter 11, verse 2. The spirit of counsel, that's Boaz, and strength, Joaquin. So the same columns there. It, it's just interesting how the, all these things uh, tie together. Uh, where, where is our strength and our counsel? It's, it's in the Lord, is it not? It's definitely in the Lord. So back to chapter 11. Verse 3. And he will delight, this is speaking of the one who has the sevenfold spirit, right? He will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by his eye, what his eyes see. See, that's what we're limited to. If you weren't there to see it, right, you've got to go by what you hear then. He will not hear, he will not, he will not make a decision by his own ears. So one of the problems of our court system and our legal system is that we're in charge of it. <laughs> that's the problem. So you're expecting justice out of those who are wicked. And I'm sorry, guys, you're, the best we can do is sort of, because we don't judge in righteousness, but with righteousness, verse 4, he will judge the poor and decide with the fairness for the afflicted of the earth. So, so how, he judges that way. Why? Because, see, in order to judge in righteousness, we've got to do two things. We've got to, first of all, know exactly what happened, which we never do, even if you saw it. You don't know exactly what happened. Because we don't have every view. And, and we're overwhelmed by it anyway. And then not only do we not need to know what happened, we also need to know what the people were thinking in the process while they did it. You'll never know, be able to know that. So there will never be, as long as we're in charge, complete righteousness. There just will not. You, hopefully you're more than 50%. But when Jesus comes and Jesus rules the earth, he's going to rule in righteousness because he does have the capacity for all those things. It will not just be what happened, it will also be the intent of those who, who carried it out. And so uh, it's going to be going to be a really great day. So, so notice there in verse 4, though, it says, With righteousness he will judge the poor and decide the fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And it gives us even more description. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. That's some really bad breath, don't you think? Is that what he's talking about? You know, this idiom, this phraseology is real consistent in the Scriptures. This, his breath. His breath, his breath, his breath. Look, look at these couple of places. Uh, we're going to turn, go ahead and start heading toward Revelation. But let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When the lawless one, is the, another name for the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with what? The breath. That's some bad breath, isn't it? of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now you're ready to go to Revelation, Revelation 19. Probably ought to just keep a thumb over there because Isaiah just keeps sending us back. Isaiah 19. Starting in verse 11, I saw heavens open and behold a white horse and he, this is the, what's going to happen 
the fleshed out version of what's happening there in 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 2, verse 8. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it called faithful and true and righteous, he judges and wages war. So God does that? Oh boy. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself, and he is clothed with robe dipped in his blood, and it's not his blood. It's not his blood. The first time he came, it was his blood. The second time he comes, it will not be his blood. And his name is called the Word of God, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fire, linen, white and clean, or following on white horses. So there's at least horses up there, and I'm thinking cats and dogs. I'm just, I haven't gotten a word from God about that yet, but I'm going to go with yes until I get some of it, something else. There's at least horses up there, guys. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. What is that? That's, that's called... That's called sword breath, is what it's called. I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I just want you to hear what, what it's saying here. So that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh. Their names written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. It cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which are in heaven, Come. And assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and men, free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army, the dumbest thing. And the beast was seized with, all, with his, the false prophet and performed the signs on his presence by which he deceived, and those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, and those who were thrown into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from his mouth, of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. What is that? What, what is the sword? What is, maybe, let me put it to you differently. What's the sword of the Spirit? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Where does the Word of God come from? Out of his mouth. So every time you speak, try to, try to speak without breathing. You can't do it. So he's not talking about bad breath. How did, the word, how did the world come into existence to begin with? Spoke it. How's it going to cease to exist for those who God is against? Speak it. No double-edged sword, literally, but definitely figuratively. So he judges in righteousness because everything he speaks is absolutely righteous and absolutely true. So he, he creates and he uncreates with the same power, his spoken word. Back to Isaiah. We're going to get done. Verse 6. Here's the conditions now as he reigns. Notice what it says. Here's famous quotes, right? Famous, Famous uh, verses of the conditions of the millennial reign of Christ. A wolf will dwell with the lamb. Why don't they today? Because that wouldn't work out. The leper will lie down with the kid. Why don't they today? So you won't have a kid very long. We're talking about a goat. The calf and the young lion will, and the fatling together. Why doesn't that happen today? Because that wouldn't work out. And the little boy will lead them, and, and also the cow and the bear will graze, and the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. Why don't they do that today? Because it's not a good idea. What happened to these animals? Have you ever ask yourself that question? They will not destroy or hurt in all of my holy mountain. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. So, so we get the impression that God didn't create things the way they currently are. That's not a shocker. Not even the animals. They kill. They attack. They destroy. They devour. They are poisonous. It's dangerous. You can be wiped out by the wild creatures of this world. They were not created originally that way. What happened to them? We did. Us. It's... It's the curse, here's uh, out, of, out of Romans 8. The creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected. There's no sin in creation. Not any sin. Why, why is there going to be animals in heaven? I, they're not sinners. Never were. But because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage to corruption and the glorious liberty of 
of the children of God. Creation's waiting for us. It's waiting for the sons of God to come to Christ and ultimately to be resurrected uh, in him. And uh, when the king comes, right, when he comes, there's going to be at least partially a removal of this curse. It will come about in that day, verse 10, that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. Here's the same, same word, never a big tree, never high and mighty, he's got nothing to prove. And will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Mark it carefully. And they will happen, it will happen in that day the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people. The second time, when was the first time? When they came back from Babylon, there were only 50,000 of them. When's the second time? You're living in it. This is it. They're, they're coming back today. They started back in 1910. They, they recreated the state of Israel. Did I tell you we're going there? <laughs> that we're going to see this place? We are. Well, let me tell you. We're headed there. They recreated their nation in 1948. Now they're one of the superpowers of the world. They're certainly our nuclear superpower. And uh, they're being regathered, in fact, in, in, in numbers that, have, that Israel's never seen before. Uh, only, of course, to be segregated off, which is what's going to happen, so that they can be attacked by the Antichrist. Of course, we know what's going to happen to the Antichrist. Jesus is going to put him to the end with the breath of his mouth. And so uh, these, these times are growing very close. So, so now we have this... this gathering, if you will, this final, final gathering, and, and it's exciting days. And we're currently watching the second time, as it says there. Now for the second time, he will gather them, recover them for, from, with his hand, and the remnant of the people will, of his people will remain from Assyria. It's just talking about directions now. From Egypt, from the north is Assyria, and Egypt from the south, and Pathros, and Cush, and Elam, and Shinar, and Hamath, and from the islands of the sea, and he will lift up a standard for the nations, and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners uh, of the earth. And the, then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart. No more separation between the northern and southern kingdoms. And those who harass Judah will be cut off and Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. And they will swoop down on the slopes of, Philist of the Philistines on the west and together they will plunder the sons of the east. And they will possess Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon and will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. So the river uh, of Egypt will be turned into nothing. And he will wave his hand over the river, which is the Euphrates, with scorching wind. And he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over in dry shod. And they will, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left just as there was for Israel in the days that they came up out of the land of Egypt. And then chapter 12, I'm going to leave, let you read it. But chapter 12 is just simply a praise chorus that's going to be happening in the days of the millennial reign of Christ. And it's written way in advance. How does he do that? Well, by the Spirit of God. Again, as Peter says, these prophets were carried along as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. And so they're able to write things that no one should be able to do. Well, nobody can. Only God can do that. So, so we'll stop right there. Questions? Perfectly clear. Good stuff. Yeah, did I tell you? We're going to Israel. Two and a half weeks. No, it's not a rumor. It's been confirmed. I have flight information. It's too late for a reservation. It is. We're totally full. We are to the hilt. Uh, do pray for us, please. It would be great to not be sick over there. And so, of course, you ride on an airplane for 10 hours both ways, and then you're sitting in bus, and then so one person gets it. You know, we've, we've had that happen. Uh, so we'd rather not get the flu. We'd rather, of course, not get COVID and other things. But by God's grace, we're going to have uh, a great time over there. So let's pray. And we will head out of here. God, we thank you uh, that you hold everything in your hands. You hold us. We thank you that you have already known us and already planned to save us before there was ever an Adam and Eve. Already in your mind there was the sacrifice of your son. It was already decided between the Godhead that, that your son would come and he would take our place. And so, God, you're ahead of all of it. You're ahead of our world. You're ahead of the stuff that we don't like. You're ahead of the current election process. You're ahead of uh, the powers that be. 
You're ahead of the stuff that is very disconcerting for us, Lord. You're ahead of all these things. So, Lord, we put our, put our faith in you. Uh, we don't rest on our own understanding, but we acknowledge you in everything, and we trust you, God, that you're in charge. Thank you, God, for inspiring Isaiah to give us these great words, and thank you for blessing our time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptistchurch.org.